This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today on the show, the trouble with Beto. He's got a huge following, but what exactly does he stand for? And what does his narrow defeat in the Texas Senate race last year tell us about what kind of campaign he would run if he won the Democratic nomination for president? Harold Meyerson has been looking into that. But first, Stacey Abrams. She was the first African-American and the first woman to win a major party nomination to run for governor in Georgia. And last year, she almost won that election. A lot of us think she would have won if the count had been fair and if her opponent had not engaged in massive voter suppression. Now she's deciding what to run for next. She could run for governor again in 2022. She could run for the Senate in Georgia next year, 2020. And there are those rumors that Joe Biden wants to run for the Democratic nomination with her as his vice presidential candidate. In the meantime, she's published a book. It's called Leading from Outside. We spoke with her about it and about her life last week. Before we talk about uh, your book, Lead from the Outside, I want to talk about what you accomplished in Georgia when you ran for governor. Everybody I know says that if there'd been a fair count, you would be the governor of Georgia right now. Um, But you did accomplish anyway some amazing things in that race. So first I want to talk about the votes you got despite the votes you weren't allowed to get. How did your vote compare with other Democrats in recent history? So we received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, uh, including President Obama, Secretary Clinton, any any Democrat who's ever run. Uh, we were only under by 54,000 votes. But what I was so excited about was the composition of the electorate. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased black turnout by 40%. But to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted altogether. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. And we centered communities of color. We centered marginalized communities. We talked about their issues. And I was told that that would be to the detriment of my ability to secure white votes. And I actually received a higher percentage of white votes than any candidate in Georgia, uh, any Democratic candidate in Georgia since Bill Clinton. How did you do it? (laughs) Well, one is that I believe what I say. I, I believe diversity matters, and I think it's an active responsibility. It's insufficient to say you want something to be so, but you don't find your own responsibility to make it happen. And so our campaign was grounded in talking about identities, but never as an exclusionary principle. People vote, people participate when they think they can be seen. And my job was to show up in places to have either firsthand knowledge or have a supporting team that could help me understand what concerns were animating those communities or worse, 
what concerns were keeping them out of the body politic. And we built a campaign around creating access and creating a pathway for their participation. And it worked. And the work that went into this wasn't just one campaign for governor. No. <laughs> so one thing I talk about in, in the book and Lead from the Outside is the responsibility to build that systems don't just come into being and therefore dismantling those systems or creating your own systems also require intentionality and thoughtfulness and infrastructure. And I, by my nature, am a systems person. I believe that democracy should be vibrant and engaged, but I also believe that poverty is immoral. And I believe that communities are too often kept distant from their power by being convinced that their power doesn't exist. And so I've spent the last 40, well, I'm 45, so let's say between one and five, I was probably not as active. (laughs) But (laughs) I've spent most of my waking life thinking about how do you get more people to the table? How do you get more people engaged? And in the last 20 years, I've been able to put that into practice through my work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and certainly the political sector. You have a really important section of your book on how to fight for groups of which you are not a part. And of course, we have to do this because we need allies if we're going to win. But it's hard to do that right. You say empathy is not enough. What is your approach? I think you have to have understanding, but you also have to lift up those who actually have those experiences. Sometimes empathy gives us an excuse. It lets us think that because I have something similar in my background that I now know what you know and I know what you need. And that's when allyship becomes patronizing. What's more important is creating space for the people who actually have those experiences to do something about it. So, for example, when I became Democratic leader, I took over a caucus that had very few staff, in fact, almost no one. And I was building a staff, but I built a staff that looked like me and looked like people I know, so it was black and white. And I took myself to task that in a state that was quickly diversifying, where Latinos were becoming nearly 10% of the population, where Asian Pacific Islanders were growing in force, I had a responsibility to increase their access. And so I created an internship program to bring them on board initially, and then I found the money necessary to hire them. I hired a Palestinian, a young Palestinian woman to be my executive assistant because I could not speak authentically about engaging the Muslim community and not find space for their employment. And these are all people who were absolutely qualified for the jobs they had. But I had to be intentional about creating space so they had a platform to do the leadership they needed to do. So the big question is, after you accomplished all these things, the huge increase in turnout of Latinos, Asian Americans, young people, uh, after you got more votes than anybody, including Obama on the Democratic ticket, how come the Republican won? And because I was running against a cartoon villain who was the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. He had 10 years of voter suppression under his belt. He had built a system that built on top of previous attempts at voter suppression that actually started under his predecessor. And he manipulated the laws, uh, aggressively enforced and selectively enforced those laws. He failed also to do the fundamentals of his job. And so we had this marriage of incompetence and malfeasance that allowed him to suppress access to the vote. I cannot prove empirically that I would have gotten every one of the votes that were suppressed, 
But if you look at the demography of those votes, if you look at the intentionality of his actions, I think it's a really good guess. So let's talk about Fair Fight Action. Fair Fight Action was born of my frustration, my disappointment, but also my anger. Uh, Democracy is ours. I am an American. I am entitled to have my voice heard. But so were the millions of people who cast their ballots on both sides of the aisle and the tens of thousands who were not allowed to have their voices heard. My responsibility beyond getting an office is ensuring that anyone who wants to speak up about the the direction they want to see for our state or for our country, that they are heard. And in Georgia, they were not. And so I want there to be a fair fight. And let's be clear, no matter what happens, I will never win the office of governor in 2018. It won't happen. But my responsibility is larger than my personal benefit. And that is that we fix the system itself. Fair Fight Action focuses on three things. Registration access, ballot access, and ballot counting. Making sure that you can get on the rolls, you can stay on the rolls, you have the ability to actually cast a ballot, they don't close your precinct or deny you access to an absentee ballot, and that your vote counts once you cast it. And we're going to do that through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy work. And where do we stand on that today? So the litigation is ongoing. We are currently in a tete-a-tete with the Secretary of State and the Governor's Office, or technically the Secretary of State's Office in the state of Georgia. They are seeking to dismiss our motion. Um, They're seeking to dismiss our lawsuit with a motion to dismiss. Uh, We will keep fighting. We believe we will be successful. Uh, We have been fighting a terrible bill that has moved through the legislature and sits on the governor's desk that will allow him to spend $150 million more than has ever been spent by any state on voting machines. And he's likely to purchase machines that are known to be flawed, known to be hackable, known to be vulnerable. They've been called the worst voting machines out there. And it is a happy coincidence that the company that stands likely to win the bid formerly employed his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff, and his general counsel just months before he became governor. Now, you're an attorney. You graduated from Yale Law School. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think are your chances in court on this one? Uh, we think that on the issue of litigation, we think that we have a very strong case. We believe that it's uh, sui generis in that most litigation on voting rights have tried to tackle individual elements. Uh, precinct closures or voter ID or uh, closing of access, you know, the issues that we face, and they, they tend to approach it individually. We are looking at it systemically. We are taking the Brown versus the Board of Education approach, which is to say that while de jure, while the law may say it's so, the fact of the matter is when the law is implemented as it is being implemented in Georgia, people are being disenfranchised and they do not have the right to vote. And so our argument is that we believe that the de facto denial of the right to vote violates the Constitution, and I'm very bullish on our chances. But I'm also very happy that we have other folks fighting this fight. Uh, Chairman Cummings, who is the chair of uh, the Oversight Committee in Congress in the House of Representatives, has demanded documents from the Secretary of State and the governor to investigate their bad actions. We also have been part of hearings, field hearings, being led by Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's the chair of the subcommittee on uh, oversight for administration looking at the Voting Rights Act. And then Terry Sewell, who's pushing for the restoration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. They're all paying attention to what we're doing. So I do think 
whether it's through litigation or legislation, I do think we will be successful at some point. Now, I've heard that Georgia isn't the only state with this kind of problem. What's your sense of the national picture right now? So one of the reasons I'm traveling the country and talking about this is that it's not endemic to Georgia. I think Georgia had not only the most singular example of voter suppression, but it's the most directly connected to the victory or loss in an election. Voter suppression is real, it's endemic, it's pervasive, and it's been around forever. But in my case, I had essentially a cartoon villain opponent and the clearest case of not only voter suppression, but the main actor who clearly controlled the outcome of the election. However, we know that in North Dakota in 2018, people were denied the right to vote because they were Native American. We know that in 2016, if you lived in Wisconsin or Michigan, there were efforts at voter suppression that were incredibly successful. We know that in Florida, there is a perennial issue with whether or not votes count. We know that in Texas and in North Carolina, voter registration, which is the predicate to being able to cast your ballot, has been made nearly impossible by third parties in Texas and been made very difficult in North Carolina. And across the country, including in California and other places, there are methods of voter suppression that are insidious and almost invisible to the eye unless you're the person trying to vote. And so my responsibility is to use Georgia as an object lesson. Uh, And because this is my state, to use our opportunities to try to solve it in Georgia. But we filed a federal lawsuit because our success in Georgia will affect the rest of the country. Let's talk about your book, Lead from the Outside. It has exercises. In the first one, you call an ambition exercise. How come ambition is number one? Because ambition is the foundation for leadership. You have to want more. In fact, the the title of chapter is Dare to Want More. And if you're from the outside, and, and marginalization happens in a lot of ways. You can be from the outside because of race or gender or ethnicity or religion or class or simply, you know, because you're just different than those around you. But whatever keeps you outside of the normative power structure, to get inside, you've got to have a reason. And we often mistake dreams for ambition. Dreams are things that make you happy. But you can forget a dream. In fact, we often forget our (laughs) dreams. Ambition animates you. It fires you up, and it's unsettling. But we have to then harness it. And the challenge is that if you're from the outside, you're rarely taught how to harness your ambition. If you come from a powerful family, if you come from a power structure that validates your every thought, then there are systems in place to help you turn ambition almost automatically into action. But for the rest of us, we have to have an architecture. And that means we have to know what we're trying to get to. And so what I wanted to do in this book, and the whole book is about this, is take what I learned through trial and error, but also through being deeply anal retentive and methodical and write it down, create a handbook for those of us who do not have those systems that are already designed for our success. And the bird agrees. Birds are chirping with happiness. (laughs) One of the surprising parts to me about your book is the section about the hack. You say that you have been a good hacker. This is kind of surprising. What do you mean? Well, you know, in, in, in modern parlance, we talk about hacking things, hacking meals. It's basically how do you figure out what the system is and then how do you get around it or through it without doing the regular stuff. A lot of my life has been about a hack. It's been about how do you take these traditional spaces and figure out if you can't get them to let you in, how do you figure out your own way inside? 
uh, you know, in years past, it would have been called guerrilla warfare. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it's it's understanding that when you first look at opportunity, when you first look at these doorways and gateways, there may seem to be no possible point of entry. And that's why we have to figure out our own codes and our own systems. And so what I tried to do with this book, and particularly in this chapter, is talk about how I've hacked my way inside, how I've, both in the, the sort of computer science and video games parlance, but also in the very, you know, pedestrian physical idea of just hacking through. When you've got to slice through, if you've ever you know, worked on a farm, when you've got to cut through the weeds and get through the detritus, sometimes it's just about recognizing you're not going to get there the normal way, so you're going to have to fight your way through. In your book, you say you reject the idea of work-life balance. Why? Because work-life balance is a lie. It is a bald-faced lie told by someone who was selling something, and you need to return whatever it is they sold you. I, I've been asked how I write novels and run for office and start companies. And what I'm supposed to say is that, well, I've figured out this amazing you know, equilibrium and things. That's not true. I've made mistakes. I've forfeited other opportunities. I've not done things that I care about because I haven't cared about them as much as I cared about the thing I wanted to do at that moment. And what work-life balance does is it creates a false sense of opportunity, but it also puts pressure on you in ways that are untenable because eventually you're going to fail. Things are going to fall apart. So instead, I operate under work-life Jenga. That's the game where everything gets stacked up and you have to pull pieces out and you hope like hell that nothing falls over. But the reality is, like Jenga, when everything collapses in on itself, the job isn't to ignore that it fell apart. It's to rebuild it and figure out a stronger structure to make it work. You have a couple of other wonderful rules. If it can't change the world, we don't do it. And that's followed by don't deal with jerks. Yes. So I, I started a company right after I left the city attorney's office, and that was my first venture into entrepreneurship. And I realized I needed a partner, in part because I think you always get better when you have people around you who know things that you don't know and who push you to be stronger. My first business partner was a woman named Laura Hodgson. Laura and I have since started three other companies. But in our first one, in Insomnia, we had a set of rules. And one of our rules was we don't work with jerks. It was slightly more crass when we wrote it down. Uh, but our point was this. We'd both come from spaces where we'd worked with people who weren't just difficult to deal with. They were disrespectful. They devalued us, in some ways dehumanized us. And when you work in those spaces and you feel compelled to keep doing it, you start to internalize how you're treated and you validate it. And so we had a rule that if people were not respectful of our values we could disagree you could have a difficult personality but you could not devalue who we were you could not treat us as less than real and human and whole and so we had a rule that if we just didn't respect you and thought that you were a bad person or just not a good person the money wasn't worth it I want to ask a little about your family. You have the most wonderful acknowledgments, and it's clear you have an amazing family. I'm especially interested in your parents, because they started in Mississippi, and I'm, I'm old enough to know what it meant to be a black person in Mississippi. Could you tell us a little about them? My parents are the most extraordinary people I've ever known, and I've met some really amazing people. 
but my mom and dad are both from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My mom is one of seven. My dad is one of five. My dad jokes that he's from the wrong side of the track and my mom's from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. Like she's who poor people made fun of. Uh, my mother's life story is, especially her younger years, it's like a Dickens novel. I mean, every time she tells us something, we go and buy her more stuff. <laughs> what they did was not let their humble beginnings, in some ways their tragic beginnings, they didn't allow that to diminish what they thought they were capable of. You know, my father is dyslexic. He didn't learn to read functionally. I mean, he was able to make his way through school. He made his way through college because he's this amazing memory and he's incredibly smart. But he learned to read better by reading to my youngest sister when he had fallen and hurt himself and wasn't able to work full time and they needed someone to watch my youngest sister when she they couldn't afford kindergarten for her or pre-K. My mother has always been just this brilliant woman who can make things happen out of nothing. And I saw her do that not only as a mom and a librarian, but also as a pastor. I saw my father fight hard for people who didn't always value and respect him and sometimes benefited from his work, but he didn't benefit from it. And then I saw them turn those moments of defeat into opportunities for triumph by becoming ministers. Um, they were called into the ministry and they live their faith and their sense of justice and responsibility every single day. And as long as they are not disappointed in me, I know I'm doing the right thing. One last thing. The amazing thing about your book is that it doesn't say, vote for me because I can do this. It says, you can do this, even if you're an outsider. I wrote this book in part because I was giving talks to different groups. I was I was actually in the middle of my campaign. I just started my campaign for governor. It was in the middle of the primary and wanted to provide a handbook. Uh, there are a lot of leadership books out there, and there are a lot of political memoirs. I didn't want to write a memoir because I've met me, and I, I'm, I like my story, but I don't think it's sufficient to sustain a whole book. But I think there were things I did that positioned me to be the first black woman to be a nominee for a party a major party for governor. I knew there were things I had done that allowed me to help start companies that were helping women and people of color and other communities access capital. I'd started this voter registration organization that had registered uh, by the end of 2018 more than 300,000 people. There were things I knew, but I also understood that knowledge in my head wasn't helping other people and that one-off conversations <laughs> were inefficient and I really value efficiency. And so for me, this was really about enlarging the army of people who can be successful, especially those who discount themselves before anyone else can. When you're on the outside, you're perennially looking in, trying to figure out how to get inside. And I believe that if you can find a doorway or a cracked window and shove yourself through that space, your responsibility is not to run and get the next thing you need. Your job is to turn around and prop it open and send out a clarion call and tell folks, here's where it is. Come on through. And that's what I tried to do. Well, Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we're really excited about whatever it is you do next. John, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for having me. Now we want to look at the opposition to the progressive candidates in the Democratic primaries, the candidates who are challenging Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. 
There are a lot, of course, but at the top of the list, we have Beto. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I thought the prospect made an excellent point this morning in Robert Kuttner's post about Beto. He said, this party, the Democratic Party, has had far too many young, charismatic leaders who were campaigning on a smile and a shoeshine and putting off deciding where they, what they stood for until later. Such candidates are ready-made to be the candidates of Wall Street, close quote. I wonder if that's your view of Beto. Well, to a large degree, yes. And later today, we put up a uh, something of a scoop by David Dayan, pointing out how a Wall Street guy whose hedge fund is one of the vulture funds destroying Puerto Rico just made a sizable contribution to Beto. When you're a tabula rasa, uh, a lot of Wall Street thinks they can, uh, you know, write on you, that you're the, you're the blank slate on which they can inscribe uh, their desires, their wishes, you know, forbidden fantasies and, and, and whatnot, which then gets the whole rest of the country into trouble. So uh, I do think that's the case. I don't know that necessarily the bright young thing alternative has to be a grumpy old man, but the way this election is shaping up, it may turn out that way. Well, the latest polls show Beto in fourth place. Joe Biden and Bernie tied for first with 26% in the new Emerson poll. Kamala Harris at 12, Beto at 11, Elizabeth Warren at 8. Beto made a big splash when he announced raising money not from uh, hedge fund vulture capitalists, but in small contributions. The total that he raised in the 24 hours after he announced was more than anybody, including Bernie. Beto raised $6.1 million in the first 24 hours. Bernie had raised $5.9 million, And, of course, that makes Beto a serious candidate right there. What do you make of those numbers? He was phenomenally successful raising uh, uh, dollars in small amounts digitally during his Senate campaign. And he still has that, you know, uh, that list. Uh, and that connection. So I, I suspect that was largely the people who fell in love with him when he was running against Ted Cruz, some portion of them funding him right away when he threw his hat in the ring. I think that's probably what that was. What, it, it, it's not you know, an interesting question to which no one has yet provided an answer to, has gone through the uh, the, the contributions, is, is whether how, how much of that $6.1 million comes from uh, new Donors. One of the things we know about Bernie's support is someone has done that since this was already, you know, a month or two ago. And so someone has called the records of Bernie contributors and found out that a lot of them are first timers. They're not just people hmm. who gave to him in the $27 average of 2016. These are some new folks. So it would be interesting to see when someone does this same kind of deep dive into Beto whether that's uh, that's the case or this is entirely the people who were giving to him when he was running against Ted Cruz. Well, the New York Times recently did a deep dive into Beto's vote in the Texas Senate campaign, and they concluded, this is the, the upshot at the New York Times, that Beto's strength in the Senate race in Texas 
came almost exclusively from white voters. Those of us thought who he had gotten an exceptional turnout among Hispanic voters are wrong, according to the New York Times. He won basically by winning over whites who had voted for Republicans and who voted for Republicans in races other than the Senate. But it's not the vision that we have of the future Democratic electorate being more Latino, more multicultural. Certainly not in Texas. I mean, first of all, Texas has been moving towards being a purple state for some time now. I mean, Hillary only lost it by eight points, uh, which was a a smaller margin than uh, Obama had lost Texas by. So uh, Texas is moving anyway. And yes, Nate Cohen in in the upshot did uh, run the numbers and and find that Beto pretty much underperformed uh, with Latino Texas and that if he had done as well in Latino Texas and turning out the vote, Indeed, even if as as Hillary had done, uh, he he might well have won. So, yeah, that that's a myth that shattered. And you know, some of the reports on Beto, there have been some deep dives into his background. Uh, the the prospected one by uh, by Chris Hooks. There's been uh, you know others in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And certainly, a relatively centrist Democrat emerges with uh, deep pockets of Republican support in Texas, largely people uh, who have connections to his father-in-law, who is a leading Republican businessman in uh, in El Paso, and uh, someone who has profoundly uh, helped Beto's career. Well, Beto has taken stands on some issues. Let me just run down his more progressive positions uh, and ask which of these you think are the most significant. He supports the abolition of for-profit private prisons. He supports a ban on assault weapons. He supports the elimination of uh, bail. He has criticized Trump's border wall very strongly. You have to do that if you're in El Paso. The Republican member of Congress who represents a border district in Texas also opposes the wall. Uh, then, yeah, that's a good yeah. that's a good point. He um, during the Senate campaign, he he called for the impeachment of President uh, Trump. It's not clear he's going to make that an important part of his presidential campaign. He supported a minimum wage of $15. He supported not exactly Medicare for all, but a more, let's call it, moderate proposal to allow anyone who wants to enroll in a insurance plan like Medicare. Uh, he opposes the death penalty. So these are these are kind of uh, liberal positions, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and and I think they're the positions that are pretty much at the epicenter of where the Democratic Party is right now. And I would suspect that that he will, you know, largely try to do that and bridge the gap between the, the center-left and the left in the Democratic Party. He's sufficiently unformed that he, he, can, he can do that so long as he isn't uh, compelled by uh, questioners to get too specific. And so far, he has managed to avoid specificity while on the campaign trail. So we shall, we shall see where this goes. There are many debates which, uh, which loom uh, you know, in the weeks and months ahead. And what's your understanding of why he did so well with white voters in the Texas Senate race, especially college-educated white voters? He did 
better than Hillary had done, better than Obama had done. Still not a lot. He got, I think, 33% of the votes of college-educated whites in Texas. This is, again, according oh, but to... This is, this, is, this is true of every Democrat running in 2018. They all did better with college-educated whites because a relatively large share of college-educated whites are completely revolted by Trump. Yeah. And, and this is a pattern that is, is discernible, you know, in every election in the country. So <laughs> I, I think this is more a question of when he was running, 2018, and the, uh, the fact that Trump has uh, pushed the Republican Party to a place where a lot of college-educated whites who have some, you know, respect for empiricism and things like that just uh, aren't willing to go. So, I, I, I mean, I, I think that's a statement as much about 2018 as it is about Beto himself, which is not to say he wasn't, you know, a, a, a pretty, pretty darn good candidate for Texas. But uh, as I said, Texas is moving, uh, and as the uh, upshot pointed out, Texas is moving anyway, and uh, he, Beto was not able to fully take advantage of that. Yeah, in fact, according to the upshot, Beto fared worse than Hillary or Obama four years before that in many of the state's heavily Hispanic areas, particularly in South Texas. That's actually kind of alarming, don't you think? Uh, I do, and uh, the uh, the story that we put up on the Prospect website about Beto pointed out that he was uh, in, a, in a in a real battle with the Latino barrio in El Paso, so Beto against the barrio, over the uh, redevelopment plan, which would have leveled uh, some of the barrio, and 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 so it's uh, you know it, it there's, there's a real uh, there's a real issue there, and and then I don't know that the the kind of get out the vote effort. That was made in presidential campaigns was made in uh, in, in some of the uh, the Rio Grande Valley and other heavily Latino parts of Texas uh, during during 2018. Another factor explaining Beto's relatively good performance in Texas is that he was running against Ted Cruz, one of the most unappealing people in the American political landscape this year or or really any other year. Of course, Trump is one of the most unappealing political candidates of any of any year. That's true, but Trump has a really strong following, although uh, it is not, let us hope, a majority. I mean, the following doesn't show that. Ted Cruz is not the kind of personality who I think evokes strong personal favor- favorability uh, with, with just about anybody. I mean, Texas is a right-wing state in many ways still, and, and he's a, a exceedingly right-wing guy, but I don't think there's the intensity of support for Cruz uh, in the right that there there is for Trump. Harold Meyerson, read him at the American Prospect at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. 
Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.